Welcome back to Pedagogy, Pedagogy Non Grata, where you bridge the gap between uh, the scientific literature and teaching in the classroom. Um, we're starting a new season today. And after a season's break, I am starting off our first uh, episode of the season with another interview with Dr. Uh, Catherine Garforth. And I have to say, um, Dr. Garforth, I'm happy to have you back on the podcast. I obviously like interviewing you because you are now our number one repeat guest. I have never had another person on this podcast as many times as you. So clearly I, I have some level of respect for what you have to say. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about today's topic. We're gonna to be talking about how to improve the um, IEP process and um, teachers understanding of that process, um, which I, I believe is sort of an area of specialty of Dr. Garforce, especially as of lately. Um, so uh, before I go any further, and uh, would you like to say anything or to reintroduce yourself? in case we have new listeners who haven't heard you before. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity to come on. I really appreciate it. And um, talking about psych eds and IEPs is a real passion of mine because I think how we're currently using them is not using them to their full potential and giving teachers and educators the information that they can actually get from these documents really is going to help improve their teaching and their success with these students that require them and, you know, informing their practice so they can do better, right? It's, it's kind of intimidating when you see these documents, like the psych ads, they can be, you know, 20 pages and full of a whole bunch of jargon that can be very difficult to understand. And it's stuff that, you know, even if you did cover it in your teacher training program, if you're not seeing it every day, it's difficult right? And it's wordy and there's statistics and you're not sure what to go for. And then how do you translate this into the IEP? And how do we create an IEP that's going to really help you in the classroom support your students and not just be a list of best practices? Yeah, well, that sort of bleeds into my, my very first question. Um, and that is, is there a learning gap between the teacher college and the real world, world for special education? And if so, why is this a problem? Well, I definitely think there is a learning gap between teacher colleges and real world special education things because the amount of time that's spent on these documents is very, very little. And you know, going into in-depth in understanding on how to read them it's really important for teachers to have this because every year, unless you are at some exclusive private school where they're handpicking the students that go in and they can say, no, we're not going to take you because your scores aren't high enough. You're, you're going to have these students in your class every year. And yes, it may be one or two students, but the things that you can learn about them is going to lessen your frustration and increase their success. Right. So if teachers are able to understand how to go through these documents efficiently, take the information that they need to learn about their student from it and know how they can use that information to better their instruction. And you know what, the strategies that you're going to use for this student are likely going to help a lot of other students in your class. I know at least where I am, the wait list to get a psych ed is quite long. And families can't afford it, getting them privately. And even if you're paying privately, there's like a six month wait at least, right? 
So I mean, that's a whole other problem <laughs> that as teachers, you can't fix. But if you learn how to use this information, it's going to help you and your relationship with a student and reach their educational needs. Um, and then it's also going to help you in that IEP process and understand how to approach their learning. So the, the big problem is the psych ed is an amazing resource if you know how to use it. And I haven't seen or come across a teacher education program or a teacher college program that provides us in their early certification or even in their masters and you know their PhD level courses, right? It's it's not there unless you do that school psychology background. And yeah, I, I I can I can speak to that. I mean, I have my bachelor's education, but I also have a, a specialist qualification in spec ed. Um, which is supposed to qualify me to be, you know, um, the equivalent of a head of spec head department. We have a specific name we use for it in Ontario, but so for most places, it would be the, the uh, equivalent of a, a spec head head department qualification. And yet in the three additional courses I had to take in that for after uh, graduating from my teacher's college um, to get that qualification, I, I don't think I required or was received any training on that particular issue of how to read um, a psych ed document. Yeah, and these are the things that are going to tell you so much about the student that's going to really help you understand the behavior issues that you're seeing in the classroom and some of those things that you find annoying, right? And if you understand they're not doing it deliberately and it's something like maybe they have an issue with working memory or processing speed and they don't have the ability to hold that information, then you have more of an understanding. It's like, well, can't you just listen better? Well, they're listening as hard as they can, but they don't have the working memory capacity and working memory is that short uh, term, a little mental scratch pad that you have that allows you to take and manipulate information. So when kids are writing down things from the board, they can't do it because they have to look up every 10 seconds. Or, sorry, not every 10 seconds, like every second to make sure they're copying it down correctly, right? Or do they have that processing speed issue? So um i know at least in my teacher education program there's a lot about think time right you need to give them a couple seconds to think about the question before they can answer it well a child with processing speed issues has problems with that even more and when especially as you get to higher grades the more that you can front load these students the better right and you know say if you're you know teaching the lesson and then getting them to read the chapter after you taught the lesson and then do the homework well maybe it would be better if you say okay you know what tomorrow you're going to be learning about this here's what you should read about it beforehand or this is how you can prepare for the class so they can go in feeling like they understand at least at a basic level what they're going to be doing and if we think about to our training programs in universities you get that course outlined and you have the readings that you have to do before class so that you have a better understanding of what's being covered in class. And that's what we need to do for our students. Every student in the classroom is gonna benefit from that. Totally, 100%, okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna apologize right now to the audience because I feel like I haven't done one of these interviews or a podcast episode in a couple of weeks and I feel like I'm just out of practice. So I apologize to the audience if I'm, if I'm uh, doing a terrible job. So. Uh, let's let's start diving deeper into the IEP process and the psych ed and look at some more specific things. So like, let's start off with readings. I know that's your your biggest specialty. 
when someone's reading a psychological assessment of a student's reading ability, what should they be looking for? Well, the first thing that you need to remember is that reading is not a natural process, right? And it's something that requires several different skills to come into play. And in the classroom, when you're working with your students, there's not necessarily the time or the materials available for you to look at these different components of reading, right? Looking at the background knowledge, looking at the phonological awareness, um, and all these different aspects that one, you likely don't have the training to do unless you've done the specialist programs, um, but you don't have the time to do this. When you have a class of 20, 30 kids, it, it's hard to get that one-on-one -on -one time. So what the psychologist or the individual that's completing the psych ed, they're gonna take out these components and tease out the details. And what you wanna see is what they're looking at. So if they're looking at things like phonological awareness and phonological processing, those have to do with the student's ability to process and manipulate the sounds within the language. And if they're struggling to distinguish the differences between sounds and manipulate the sounds within a word, that's going to translate to their reading. And understanding that is going to help you understand the intervention that they need. Because if you're familiar with um, the simple view of reading, right? So reading comprehension is made up of language comprehension and word recognition. Well, that's gonna tell you, this is something in the word recognition side of things, because if you struggle with something like phonological awareness, when it comes to sounding out words, you're gonna struggle, right? Because breaking a word into its individual sounds and blending them together, right? So when we ask a kid to sound out the word cat, they need to be able to blend those sounds together, at. But if that skill alone is something that they're struggling with, then you need to be aware of that. So you need to know how this is gonna to translate to the intervention side of things. And whether it's something that you can do as a classroom teacher, or you need that support from the learning support teacher to target that. The other thing is when you look at things like the Scarborough's reading rope, and seeing all those factors that come into just the word recognition equation, right? And the language comprehension equation, those are things that the clinician is looking at again. And when you understand where the problem is with reading, then you can make sure that you're addressing it on the appropriate level. So if you're having a student that's struggling with understanding what they're reading, but they're not having a problem actually reading it, then putting them in an intervention or supporting them in a way that's working on that actual reading of the words isn't gonna help them. And the same goes for the student has no problem understanding what they hear. So if they have a conversation with you and they have no problem saying it, but if they have to read it and then understand what they're reading, well then that student needs support accessing the information that they're reading. Right, so that's when it's appropriate to say, oh, audiobooks, right? So if they can understand the information when they hear it, but not when they read it, then an audiobook's the right approach. But if they can't understand the information when they hear it, an audiobook's gonna let them hear it, but it's not gonna have that same translation, right? 
Yeah, to me, what I'm hearing is the principle of specificity. We yeah. want our instruction to be specific to our students' specific needs. I, I, For me personally, I think this is just like one of the most bare bones, simplest issues behind evidence-based instruction is you want to match your instruction to what your students actually need to learn and understand. And there, well, there's, there's also the fact before we look at reading and math, there are two skills that are very often looked at, even three of them that I'd say are very, very important to consider. They are working memory, the processing speed, and the rapid automatized naming. That's typically found in the phonological awareness, but that's looking at the automaticity and how quickly they can go to their long-term memory and retrieve the information. So a test for that will be you know, there's a whole series of little boxes with colors in it, and we're seeing how long it takes them to name all the colors in the line. So this is not something that's new learning. By the time that they get a psych ed, if they are proficient in the language, naming colors should not be a difficult task for them, right? It's something they see blue, they know it's blue, right? So when we look at this, it's seeing how quickly they can respond to that. They can do it with pictures, letters, numbers, and that's giving us the idea of how quickly they can access this information. And that does relate to the processing speed. And that processing speed has to do with how quickly they can think about the information that you're giving them. So if you're giving them instructions, do they know right away what they're doing or do they not? Um, and then when we look at working memory, it's their ability to hold and manipulate information while they're working. These things, are gonna affect their learning in all areas and understanding this is gonna help them. So if you have a student that's struggling with reading or has a learning disability, but they have a really high processing speed, telling them the same thing over and over again, teaching it the same way isn't gonna help them and slowing down your talk to try and say, okay, well, cat is uh, they're just going to get frustrated, right? Because they understand what you're saying. Hearing it over and over again isn't going to help them. Hearing it slower isn't going to help them. It's the concepts within that skill. It's the same thing for math. Whereas if they have that slower processing speed, slowing it down, making sure they have the steps is going to help them. So again, it's knowing your student and knowing their needs right mm -hmm. and where to support them so when again sorry for going back to reading if you have a student that's struggling in that phonological awareness and struggling with their phonics working on a higher level skill isn't going to address those underlying needs so you may be able to you know put them in an intervention that okay well this is a reading we're going to teach them how to read but they're not at a level to access that it's going to cause frustration and you're not going to see the gains that you're wanting to see um, so again, like when I go through a psych ad, I look at the results tables and you, when you read the paragraphs and when it's talking about the results in the psych ad, and this is something that through, you know, my experience, this is something that parents and teachers and principals, they'll often skip through because this is where you're going to see that jargon and you're going to see the standard scores and the percentiles and it's like, okay, overload. If I just go to the end of the psych ed and read the 
recommendations, the results and the diagnosis, that's is going to be enough when it, it, it can give you a little bit of information, but it's not going to tell you the specifics. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like reading a study abstract. Yeah. I think you understand the study. Exactly. Um, the conclusion, right? Yeah. Abstract or results. One of the two. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, one of the things you were saying, just quickly to go on a tangent for a second, it reminded me of a specific student. Uh, I think we talked about this actually one of the last times I, I, I interviewed you about this, but um, I had a student who just always comes to mind because it was such a very specific breeding case where he knew all of his sounds and he could decode, but he decoded so slowly that I felt by the time he got to the end of the word, it was such an effort to, to pronounce that word that I'm sure by the time he got to an end of a paragraph, he would have no idea what he had just read. Um, and I'm sure people would hear that, look at those results and they'd see, oh, this student has a comp reading comprehension problem. We need to give them more comprehension work. And I, I don't think that would have been accurate, but it would be like, you decode every single word in a sentence. Did he do it accurately? That was the crazy part. It was, it was, it was really interesting to see. So when I, I think about that student, what you're just saying, it almost reminds me of maybe a processing mm -hmm. or maybe just, he just didn't have the automaticity yet and he needed more fluency work. I'm not sure, but. Well, yeah. And the working, so that's what, the, that's why the processing speed and the working memory are so important. So when you think about when a kid is, for example, let's now stick to reading, right? So if the kid doesn't have the automaticity for the letter sound correspondence, so they, if they see the letter C, they say, K, and they know it right away. If it takes a while for them to access that, that makes it more taxing on their working memory, right? So they only have that little post-it note in their mind. And it's got like a, about a 30 second refresh, maybe. But there are some kids that have really poor ones and have that shorter amount, right? So they're looking at, again, I always use the word cat. I don't know why, but they're looking at cat. And they're like, okay, that's the letter C. All right, and what sound does C make? Okay, C makes K. Okay, then what's next? Then it's A. A makes the sound A. Okay, so K, A. Then it's the letter T. Okay, what sound does T make? T makes the sound T. Okay, so it's and then they have to blend it and that's really taxing on the working memory right so by the time that they've decoded that word and figured out what it said they probably forgot the other words that came before it yeah. right and that's where i say looking at those scores. So during the psych ed, they're gonna look at reading comprehension and they're gonna look at oral comprehension. And if there's a mismatch between the scores, if they can understand what they hear, no problem, but they can't when they're reading it, you have to say, okay, well then that's more of an issue in the reading sort of thing. So we need to make sure that the support we're giving them is on the reading side of the equation, on the word recognition side, right? And I mean, a huge thing, and I know this is probably a little bit of a tangent, but the huge thing is when we're looking at our students' abilities and their comprehension level, if it's age appropriate, but their reading level isn't, then we need to make sure 
when you're doing silent reading and different activities that they have access to audiobooks that are at their comprehension level. Because if we're forcing them to be reading books that are at their decoding level, we're not helping them because they're struggling on the words and they're not getting access to information at a level that they can understand it. And when we look at the research, we see the difference between our struggling readers and our proficient readers that read so much at home on their own and have no problem. The number of words that they're exposed to is so discrepant. So, and that's why they're learning a lot of their vocabulary. You can only teach so many new vocabulary words explicitly in your classroom in a week. If they're not getting it from what, you know, reading and outside, they're at a disadvantage. And that's when we see the Matthew effect in reading. Yeah. Where the kids that can read, read and get the vocabulary and the knowledge and everything and they expand their background knowledge and everything where the kids who can't read don't because they don't have the same exposure to the number of words. Yeah, you know, feel free to disagree with me on this, but I, I feel like uh, too much emphasis in education right now is being placed on comprehension uh, at the early grades, at least. I think um, students who can't read or are struggling to read often do poorly on comprehension tests. And there's this, this mindset, well, the ultimate goal of reading is comprehension. Ergo, we should be spending more time on comprehension. And I, I think the problem with that is that most reading comprehension isn't actually a comprehension issue it's a reading issue and that the student can't read the words. Ergo, they don't know what it means. Not, um, they can read it, but don't know what it means. But feel free to disagree with me on that. No, I agree. And the other thing is reading comprehension can be taught in every single subject. Yeah. We're teaching them to understand the language and giving them the skills to do that. So we need to focus our attention on the students that can't read. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is I was a high school teacher before I was an elementary school teacher. And as a high school teacher of English, I didn't teach reading. I taught reading comprehension and writing exclusively. So I, I feel like this, there's this weird thing where people think I'm super biased against comprehension. It's just that I feel like in grade three, I think it doesn't matter that much, to be honest. Uh, I'm not saying never teach it, but like, I think personally, this is just my opinion. I think it should be more 90-10 definitely and but not so when you have the student that's a fluent reader and understanding you can still do reading instruction where you're working on things like morphemes and the etymology of words which is hugely important and i know in a past podcast that we did it may not have come across how much how important i feel this is but it's important when the student is ready for it so we need to make sure that they have the automaticity of the letter sound correspondence. So they can see a letter, recognize it, associate it with the sound, and do that for every letter in a word and blend those together. We need to start with the basics and build up and make sure that they have everything that they need. So this is kind of moving away. <laughs> from this the psych ed itself yeah we've we've gone off on a huge tangent i i that's probably my fault but i don't know <laughs> we can go back to the original interview questions if you like um but yeah so when it comes to looking at the psych ed the stuff that we've gone into tangents on is all important it's all things that you can get from the psych ed but 
learning how to use that document, learning the jargon, what it means and understanding the scores. I know at least here on the West Coast, there's a lot of pushback against standardized tests. Well, in the psychoeducational assessments, that's what's used. And it's not to compare the student to say, oh yeah, well, you, you know, you're not teaching them correctly because of this. It's saying, okay, this is where the student is performing, giving their grade level. This is how we need to do. And the, the, the great thing about psychoeducational assessments since we're teasing out all the skills related to things, it gives us a better understanding of where the student struggles and where they're really good at. And when you look at the psych ed, you can see those skills that they're doing well at and find ways to use those skills to help support their weaker areas, right? Um, and this comes into a huge thing with mathematics. One thing when I'm working with students, um, I will often give them like a mad minute, depending on their age, whether it's just addition, addition, subtraction, addition, subtraction, multiplication, just at the very, very basic level. And this is something that you're going to see in the psych ed as a, a, a fluency measure. So we're looking to see how quickly the student can answer the questions, right? And when you're doing this, you're seeing how fast. And this is where you're gonna see some students that get all of the questions right, but they're only able to answer a few. And that has to do with the automaticity of their math facts, right? And you may be thinking, okay, well, a student in you know the upper grades doesn't really matter. Like, I don't care. Well, yes, you do care because that's gonna have an impact on everything else, right? And knowing that they can do it accurately but not quickly is going to tell you that they understand the concept right it just takes them a while to do that so that could again have to do with working memory and processing speed so those are the students that you want to say okay yes they know how to add they know how to subtract they know how to multiply but it takes them a really long time to do it so if we give them a calculator when i'm not asking them or i'm not measuring the calculation fluency and they can use it for this and do it as long as they show me their work step-by-step step for things like long division and multiple digit multiplication, it's removing that barrier to them and it's giving them the access. And do you know how, frust well, how frustrating it is to know how to do something and know it takes you 10 times longer than everyone else in the class, no matter how hard you try, whether it's a working memory issue or a processing speed issue. This is something that may get better with age, but it's not something that going home and doing your multiplication tables is necessarily gonna fix, right? If it takes you that time to access it, that's how it is. And I'm not saying they don't need to work on it, but when you're working on something else in the classroom, like say if you're doing long division, well, let them use a calculator. They know the process. And this, again, is something that we see in universities when you're doing math um, or statistics or anything. If you show your work, you'll get partial marks for the steps, even if you don't, because you're showing that you understand the concept, right? And they know what to do, but you're taking away that really taxing process of knowing what five plus seven is. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta say, so I'm, I don't like talking about this, to be honest, but uh, I have a diagnosis of ADHD and uh, math was always something in school I struggled with, I think, and in part because learning those really long um, procedures, especially for long division, long division killed me as a kid, um, was really tough because you'd be paying attention only 40% of the time and you'd miss 60% of the formula. Um, and it's funny to like today, uh, I teach math and I actually feel I'm a good math teacher, to be honest. Um, but I, I have a high knowledge level now of the conceptual and the procedural, but uh, I'm still slow. Like my computation, there'll be students in my class who have like faster computational skills than me. And that's part of why I'm just like, well, who cares if you use a calculator? I use a calculator. Like I have, I have uh, essentially three blogs I, I, I run on my, my spare time and all of them are statistics. I'm not sitting there calculating statistics in my head. I'm using a calculator in part because I want to make sure I'm right. I don't, I don't see the value in, in saying never use a calculator. At the same time, I do think there is value in teaching kids the, the material they don't learn or they haven't learned uh, and trying to get them to learn the computational stuff and doing time tables. You give up on that, but if they yeah. have shown you that they can do the addition. And so like, I will very often see kids on this fluency measure, they get all the questions right, but they don't get many right. So they have a really low score, right? So they're in the, you know, the 10th percentile, the fifth percentile. And it's not that if you give them 10 minutes to do the same sheet, they'd have so many more answered and they have them answered correctly too. Yeah. Right? So the accuracy that is there, it's just the, the time it takes to do it isn't. Yeah. Right. I know, I know as a math teacher, I never put time limits on my test, uh, at least for the most part. I've had kids take that to the extreme and I've had to, you know, be like, all right, it's been two and a half hours. You're going to have to put the paper down. But uh, for the most part, I tell students they can take as long as they want. But yeah, but the ones that are taking the two and a half hours are the ones that don't understand the concepts and they're grasping at straws, right? Sometimes, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I don't want to get too into that question. That's, that's too, that'd be too long a conversation. I'll, I'll move on to my next question for the uh, thing. Is there any terms that you think teachers really need to know about math instruction for the psych ed actually before we move on? Um, well, looking at things like there will be things like quantitative concepts. So again, this is, can they understand the concepts related to math? And very often you'll see kids that are high in these and spatial relationships. And that's when basically you're giving them um, an object and they have to manipulate it in three-dimensional space. And you'll see kids that are in your class and you know they're scoring really low on the math, but they do really, really high on these, right? And it's understanding that it's how things can be presented that are affecting their ability to answer it, right? And then when you look at the different like word problem things, uh, are you actually dealing with an understand, uh, underlying reading disorder because they can't read and understand how to answer the questions? Have you taught them how to access that information? Because I'm sure if you wrote out the question just as a question and gave them the steps, they could answer it, right? Yeah. Or you, you talked about it with them. So that's where looking at the, the way the clinician looks at these students under a microscope can really help understand, right? And during the psych ed, the clinician isn't just using that information that they gather. They're also taking into account the background information that's being provided. And, you know, you send the reason for referral, 
right? And you give examples and they look at previous reports. And this is all information that they take and put it together. And they have, you know, the background information about how the child grew up, family history. And these are things all to take into account. In the psych ed, you're also going to see uh, sometimes things about executive functioning. And I know that's another conversation, but this also has a huge impact on how they do. So executive functioning is a big topic, but I do wanna briefly cover it here to say that there are three lower level executive functions that understanding these three can really help your understanding of how your students are struggling. They are working memory, inhibitory control, and cognitive flexibility. Kids with learning disabilities often have a problem at some level with working memory, right? And that's where we're talking about the student that takes forever to copy things down from the board. Inhibitory control is individuals with ADHD. Their ability to focus their attention and choose where they focus their attention. These are the two foundational skills that happen and are required for everything else that we do. And together those build on to cognitive flexibility and that's the ability to change your mind, take different perspectives, transition through things. So if you have a child who struggles with their working memory, um, their cognitive flexibility, their inhibitory control, this is gonna have a huge role in their ability to function in the classroom. And it's gonna give you ideas as to how you need to provide support for them, right? And if you're providing support for them in a way that's gonna be taxing on their weakness area, it's not gonna help them. And that's why we have the IEP, right? The Individualized Education Plan. The purpose of that is to give you, the teacher, a better understanding of how to support this student. Now, I'm gonna take an example from my own experience. I do have dyslexia, I'm severely dyslexic, and I had many struggles through school. And the reason why IEPs are important is because they take into the students' learning styles. And I had the experience where I had a teacher that also had dyslexia. And he was like, okay, well, I'm dyslexic and you're dyslexic. So obviously what works for me is gonna work for you. And so you need to take notes this way in my classroom. And the way that he wanted me to do it was testing my area of weakness and so difficult and so hard that it, it just, it didn't work, right? And it made it that much worse. So that's where that individualized education plan, when we take the time to incorporate the strengths and weaknesses from the psych ed and use that to inform our practices and give us the goals and the objectives that we need and the strategies that we're gonna use to support this student, that's gonna make it better for everyone. It's gonna make it better from the student because they're experiencing success and they're getting their needs met. It's gonna make it better for the parents because they're not dealing with the issues of their child struggling and they feel like their child's needs are gonna be met. It's better for you, the teacher, 
because you know exactly what you need to do for this student to support them. And it's going to give you the information that's going to help make your teaching easier. And I know that a classroom full of students <laughs> that all have their own learning needs can be overwhelming because I feel it was, or I felt it was, right? Um, and if you have this Coles notes to the student, it's really going to help you. For sure. You know, you, your, your description of your dyslexic teacher struck a nerve with me because uh, it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, people hearing the word, oh, dyslexic, and then thinking they know everything about that student. Um, there is just such a consensus within pop culture about what dyslexia is, and even within the general education community, and like, what is the solution in like contrast, like what the evidence is actually suggesting. Yeah. Like, as soon as like, I hear someone talking about dyslexia, who's not that qualified, I'm in my head, I'm like, oh, God, what are they going to say next? Uh, yeah. And another example that I usually bring up with that one is I have a sister who's dyslexic as well. And you're like, okay, well, family genes, right? Uh, DNA and everything. Uh, so it's going to be the same. The things that work for you are going to work for her and vice versa. Well, no, that's not the case because our disabilities are in different areas. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know what? Actually, uh, you, you introduced me to Dr. Max Colhart, who specialized yeah. in that specific topic. And I really loved listening to him talk about it because he was so nuanced and yeah. so like, well, it can mean a thousand different things. So that's why we have to be very specific. It's like, yep, yeah, that sounds exactly. about right. Exactly. Uh, so so let's, let's I, I wanna, oh, sorry. Well, that's why I was gonna say, I know a lot of school districts or ministries have you know, a set of, so these are what we want you to use for goals and objectives for an IEP. And these are the recommendations and these are the strategies. and you just cut and paste them in. Yeah. Problem with that is it's not individualized. And I just had a whole Twitter conversation uh, a couple of days ago about how that's not helping the student. And it's not helping you. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what Quebec does. It's not uh, in my experience, but Ontario does, but that's exactly how the Quebec IEP writer worked was you copied, you, click, you even typed the code. Okay, student has diagnosis of dyslexia. Here's the code of the strategies to be recommended. Done. Yeah, exactly. But that's not helping you. Okay, so, you know, use graphic organizers. Well, that's not going to tell me anything. Yes, I know graphic organizers are good and useful, but why? Which ones? How yeah. do, I need, do I need to teach them how to use it or they didn't know they know this, right? And that's all things that we can have in. So, again, when I work with students, I take what they need and figure out the best way to support them. So if it's a novel study, we come up with a graphic organizer that works for them. And then as you know, IEPs go, we say, okay, so these are the graphic organizers that we use and the student knows how to use and it works for them, right? And you know, you'll, you'll get some of these overzealous, very good intention teachers that think they need to reinvent the wheel and be the magic. Uh, wand right but again speaking from experience if a student has a strategy that works for them and it's doing well and it's working don't think that oh you know what I had this student last year and this worked for them so you need to try this no if they have something that works and it's working and it's getting good results keep it up don't think you need to make it that much better 
you know, there's no problem with trying new things. And I'm not saying that you have to stick with it, but if it's working, and especially when you get into the higher grades in high school, if they have a system that's working for graphic organizers or how they take notes or how they do things, don't try and push it. And that's another thing that's important. Yes, there's, you know, the standard set of accommodations or modifications that in theory work, right? But just because it should work doesn't mean it's going to work. And again, I'll use an example of myself. I can't use audiobooks. I mean, I can listen to them, no problem. But if I want that deeper level of comprehension where I really understand it, I need to personally read it. And yes, it's a lot slower. Um, and I also have to take notes physically by hand. Yes, I'm faster typing them. No questions asked, but it's not registering. So even though it may be on the surface more efficient because it's faster, it doesn't give me the learning that I need to get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty similar. Although I, I will say too, it's funny the thing I think about graphic organizers is people will say, oh, graphic organizers for specific disabilities or graphic dis organizers for students who are visual learners. And I think the reality is just most students are, are helped and benefited by graphic organizers. I don't think it's like magic to specific students per se. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. Some of these things that you're learning for your students with exceptionalities, and I like to use the word exceptionalities because it's more encompassing and it's never black and white, right? No. But these are strategies that are going to help other students in your classroom, right? And there are things, um, one of the things I often talk about is schema cards. And these are basic step-by-step -step explicit instructions that are gonna help the student get onto task, right? Um, so for example, they may have one for math and it says, okay, you open your book, you get your book here, you do this. It depends on the student's needs, right? But this is how you answer the question. Um, and that gives them that reference for them to turn to instead of, as soon as you give them the assignment, you finally get to your desk, you think you have a time to take a deep breath, then they come up, what am I supposed to do? I don't understand. And then you can say, well, look at your schema card, right? And one thing that we haven't mentioned yet that I think um, is important is also the anxiety that comes with something like a learning disability or ADHD or any neurodiversity, right? Because whether it's you know enough for a diagnosis of a generalized anxiety disorder or not, there is the anxiety that comes with it. And it's, you know, is, is a teacher gonna erase a board before I write everything down? Um, you know, and then when you have the rule, and I know it's very common and I'm sure I used it, three before me, when you have that student that's always asking me questions, I'm like, okay, well ask other people in your class before you ask me. Well, a student that has anxiety issues, that's not gonna work. That's gonna make it even worse, right? So that's what we need to make sure we have as part of our understanding, right? So we have these things and if they have processing speed issues, well, there's anxiety because they think they're not gonna get the information down or if they struggle with the actual formation of letters, right? And writing things down and knowing how to spell things. Well, when they're copying down an assignment from the board, 
they're having to check to make sure they're spelling the word right. Every single letter, every couple letters. And honestly, in today's world where technology is so readily accessible, we need to think about what's best for the student in this situation. Is it better for you to let them take a picture and make sure they have the assignment written down or that you write it on a post-it note and give it to them, put them on the desk after the assignment's done? Really, that takes, what, an extra 15 seconds of your day? And if yeah. it saves you so much stress and frustration for the student and makes your job easier, it's worth it. Yeah, 100%. I know as a, so I taught history for a while in high school level, which was, I, I have to say the highlight of my teaching career so far um, in many ways. Uh, and part of the thing you're trying to prepare students for is note-taking. So you want them to practice that skill of note-taking. But I had students in my class who had issues taking notes. So uh, I had to, I would just print off the notes and give it to them. And I'd say like, try and copy the notes to keep up because it is part of the lesson. It is a skill to practice. But like you have them there type ready if you need them. So I, I you can have the best of both worlds, I think. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. And that's where note takers have come in handy. I mean, in university, I had a note taker, but I still took notes. Yeah. But I didn't have that anxiety of making sure that I had everything written down. And, you know, especially when so many of our conversations and our instructions using PowerPoint these days, right? Or media. And yeah. it's easy to not think about how fast you're clicking through the slides and someone that has problems writing down the information, not getting them. And, you know, when their kids are in elementary school and high school, it's not like you're sending them the course notes, right? They don't have access online. I mean, maybe, maybe you're an amazing teacher that has this available to them and you email them the notes. Maybe you have time for that. Um, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it really does depend on the grade and the subject too, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so, before we move on, so I kind of have this interview divided up into two topics, really. Before we move on to the second part of the, the interview topic for today, mm -hmm. um, are there any other specific things you want teachers to be looking for when they're reading a psychological assessment? Um, I think one of the best recommendations that I can have is when you're going through a psych ed, take notes, make a cheat sheet, it's a big document. There's lots of stuff. Don't make yourself have to go to refer to it. Create a strength and weakness profile. So you understand where their strengths and weaknesses are and you have that to refer to in the future. You don't need to have their standard scores or their percentiles memorized. You wanna make it so it's usable for you. And once you understand how to do this, um, it's a lot easier. And then I always suggest creating a living document. Um, you know, I use Microsoft OneNote personally. There's so many different, like every note, whatever you want to use, have that going. So in the future, you can refer, oh, what was working memory? What was phonological processing? Because as a classroom teacher, you may have a few psych eds in your classroom a year, but you're not doing it on a regular basis. So I mean, some people have an amazing ability to remember these words and everything, but if it's something that you think you're going to have to refresh your memory on, keep that one note or the, the living document where you add to it and add to your understanding of it. And, you know, if there's a video on YouTube or a description, just insert the link so you can refer to it in the future. That's a great, that's great advice. 
So I wanted to talk to you about accommodations and modifications. And I have to admit, this is a, a bit of a pet subject for you. You're kind of smirking. This will be an audio format, but if anyone is listening, they should know that she's smirking, probably because she knows it's a pet issue for me. Uh, I personally, I think there is a lot of confusion over the difference between accommodation and modification. And I think people don't think there is. That's the irony. I think everybody thinks they know what this means. And yet I feel like most people actually don't. What is the difference between an accommodation and a modification? Okay. So when it comes to supporting students with exceptionalities and in special education, there are ways you can do it right? There's a way where you keep them on the curriculum so they're learning the same things as their peers and they have the same expectations, right? But we're adding supports into the situation, whether it's using a computer or whatever, the supports that they need are not changing what they're expected to learn and how the, the knowledge that they're expected to show. It's changing how it might be shown or how they're getting there. But the, the end goal is the same, right? And then there's a modification where it's changing what they're learning. And it's moving them from the curriculum. It's moving them from getting their high school diploma to getting a completion certificate. But this is where it gets tricky. Once you place a student on a modified program, that doesn't mean they can't go back to the regular program and regular track. Right? So an accommodation, sometimes referred to as an adaptation, is something that you're doing to help facilitate the learning or the showing of the learning of the student, right? It's giving them extra time on the test. It's giving them the use of a computer. It's letting them use an audio book, letting them use Dragon Naturally Speaking or some voice to text dictation software, right? It's very, very much helping support them and tailoring it to their needs, right? Whereas a modification is actually changing things. The way that I like to think about accommodations and modifications is thinking about going to purchase a car. An accommodation is something that you're gonna get as an option for you know, a free change, like choosing, sorry, not a free change, let me try that again. <laughs> I like to think about accommodations and modifications as to purchasing a car, a new car. When you get a new car, you have all these options available to you. There are ones that are not going to change the model and shape and how it is from the lot, right? You may choose different colors, different materials, and different features, whether you get the, so you can connect to Wi-Fi, whether you get the computer screen, whether you get the TV screens in the back of the headrests, whatever. These are all options that are, are fine and giving you the same access to driving the car, right? Those are accommodations. Those are the things that we're doing for our students that is getting them to learn the same material, but it's not changing what they're learning. It may change how they show it, but they're still learning the same thing. A modification are those when you get, you know, the air intake or you're modifying the actual model of the car, right? So we're modifying the actual learning that's being done for the student, 
this can be done for just part of the vehicle, part of the student. So you can modify a student for something uh, like mathematics and just have them on a modified program for mathematics, or you can modify them for the whole curriculum, right? And it depends on the student's needs. And understanding that once you modify a program for a student, there is still an opportunity to go back to the regular program up to a point. It's typically around grade 11 that they have to be back on the regular program in order for them to graduate with the diploma instead of a certificate of completion. Now there are a couple of exceptions to this. And if there is something like you have to have language, a second language to a certain level. Well, if someone has the diagnosis of dyslexia um, or another diagnosis, they may have an exemption, a language exemption. Now, technically you're modifying the program because you're removing something that they have to learn, but it's not affecting those core academics, right? So it's all understanding what's gonna be done. And there is a lot of hesitation about modifications, especially when it comes to students and wanting to move them off the, the track of others, you know, the rest of the class. But you need to figure out whether it's appropriate. So is it better for a student to stay failing in a subject and never really getting it? and never understanding it, or taking the time to say, you know what, we're gonna modify the program so we get that solid foundation that they need to catch up. And again, I'm gonna use myself as an example. So I went on a modified program and I went from not reading and not being able to do math to reading and doing math. And it was the right decision to be made about me because since I was able to have that intensive intervention to catch me up on the skills, I was able to go back and complete things. And I mean, obviously I have a PhD, I was able to graduate, right? Um, so just because you modify it short term doesn't mean it's a long term. And yes, there are students that are gonna be modified and there are kids that are gonna go into school that are gonna be a modified program from the beginning but it's understanding that modifications can be used appropriately and it's not necessarily a cop-out, right? It's not saying, you know, you know what? I really don't wanna deal with this problem. We're not gonna do it. And that's, that's the fear that I think a lot of parents have and a lot of teachers have. And it's the same sort of thing that I see with accommodations. Right, so accommodations, you're keeping the same thing. Um, but I see schools saying, okay, you know what? They get audiobooks, they get the use of a computer. We're gonna stop working on their spelling and their reading. And that's not fair. That's not fair to the student. And that's removing the responsibility of the school to make sure that this student learns. Now it's acceptable for them to say, we're gonna let them use audiobooks for English. Right? 
or language arts so that they can have access to you know the novels and answer the questions and do that's what they have to do to show their learning in those subjects but they still need to have that pull out support and learn how to read and get the instruction to do the reading it's the same thing with a calculator right that we spoke about earlier we want to make sure that they can continue to do the higher level math problems we still want to work on their fluency and efficiency of the you know the addition the subtraction the multiplication but we're removing that from the equation when we're trying to get them to do the higher level math so I guess what I'm trying to say is accommodations are helping give students the access to the learning and their ability to show their learning. Modifications are changing what they are learning. And I come across seasoned teachers that get this wrong all the time. And they mix them up and modifications should be signed off on parents. By parents, right? You, I'm pretty sure in all the provinces, sorry, I haven't checked it out and I'm not 100% in all of your listenership in the countries where they belong, but it's something that it has to be signed off by the parent to modify a student's program or a guardian, right? So I know, I know Ontario, um, the parent has to be consulted, but the parent doesn't have to agree. So oh. the, the parent can disagree and the school can just overruled parent but we have a whole litigious system that parents can go to like court over and battle to school if they really really want to which yeah. is a very intense system although I've, I've never seen a parent actually go that my entire career of 10 years uh I have to say I 100% agree with everything you said um and I I, I just wanted to, to add I I know the Ontario government for us Although most of my listeners are not from Ontario, admittedly, but for the Ontario government, we also have a stipulation in our like legal code around special education. The modification can also be anything that lowers the difficulty of the work by um, I forget the exact word, but by an extensive amount. So even if like the curriculum is the same, but the expectations are significantly lower, it's also considered a modification, at least in Ontario. Um, well, and there's also the um... So I, 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 in my master's research, I look at the JUMP math program. And I like the philosophy of once you've shown mastery, you don't need to keep doing it, right? So if you're giving, so the, the kids that can do addition subtraction questions till the cows come home really, really quickly, it's not a big deal for them. But when you have a child with working memory and slow processing speed and that sort of thing but they can do it and they've shown you that they can do it and say you know and they have three levels of problems you have the easy problems the medium and the more advanced well don't say just do half the problems just do the first half do every other one right and then this also works when it comes to the gifted students right and you know a lot of kids that are doing well or excelling it's like oh yeah just tack on more questions well that's not fair no, I completely agree. Right? Say, okay, look, you've shown me that you know this concept. Let's work on something at a level that you can understand and give you, you know, the idea that you can do more with that, right? Fair isn't the same with all of our students. And as long as they're, they've shown you that they can meet 
that concept, they understand it. You don't want to keep on doing it over and over and over again, because that's going to build resentment. For sure. hundred percent. And it's like, okay, so I have to do everything the class has to do. And then you want me to do more. Okay. We'll say maybe I only have to do the, you know, like one or two of the really easy ones. But if I get the really hard ones, I can do the easy ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, in my, my personal teaching, uh, and I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I, it's, I have uh, lots and lots of assessments. And then as soon as a kid shows mastery on something, they get to move on. And uh, it's a lot of like front end work, but it, it's not as much towards the middle and the end. And the kids love it actually, because they never have to do work that they, they already know they learned, like, especially in math, like that's such an annoying thing. Like, yeah, I learned this on week one. Why is it three weeks later, I'm still doing 30 questions a day of this math, you know? Uh, but uh, I, I will say, I think it's so important for the parents to be involved and understand this question. So I think sometimes in an IEP meeting, this idea of what is modification or adaptation can be sort of glossed over. Yeah. And I really find it very important to explain it fully to parents. And I actually think, especially in a high school level, it's the kids should understand what you're saying to them and should be a part of that meeting too. That's a huge thing when it comes to IEPs. It's very important that we teach kids young and early about advocacy and about their needs because it helps reduce the level of anxiety and frustration if they can attribute it to something. This is why this is difficult for me, and I understand that. I mean, I may not like it, but I get it, right? As opposed to, is I'm just stupid because it's horrible feeling. You're just stupid, yeah. right? Um, and they can provide a lot of really good insight. And just as the parents, right? And that's one thing, you know, you talk about that parent, the parent that you don't want because they give you this whole laundry list. And yes, it can be annoying, but they're doing it with their best interest of heart and they're helping you. But the important thing to remember is that they've known this kid a lot longer than you have. And they know the past, they know what has worked and they know what hasn't worked and they want to see their child succeed right they also have things that are going to be clues that again as a classroom teacher or even as a resource teacher you don't have the same time working supporting this student and you don't necessarily have the ability to pick up those nuances i mean some teachers are really good at this and if that's a you know, a superpower of yours, that's awesome. But I was uh, working with a family about a student and it was, you know, when he starts humming and singing to himself, he's had enough. Well, as a teacher with 30 kids in the class, it's an annoyance. But if I know that it's actually this student needs to take a break and go, you know, go to the water fountain, get the drink water, and instead of just getting mad and frustrated, just, you know, create a single with them. Okay, you know, go do this. And it's an interesting situation because it was actually the individual's tutor that pointed this out to the parent. Because when the student was younger, it was just, you know, asking for frequent bathroom breaks. And she's like, well, you know, I've been working with them, you know, whatever, and I've noticed this. And that's why it's also important to consider what any additional support outside the school has noticed too right i mean so many of these students 
have other people in their lives that know a lot. And if parents or tutors or grandparents or whoever really knows this child has picked up on these things and they can share them with you, it's going to help. Right. So, um, you know, if you know, at the beginning of the year, you have the parents that, you know, hand you a piece of paper about their kid and so like, yeah, you know what? I know what kids, I don't need to read this, but take, take the 10 minutes to review it because it actually may give you some really valuable information, right? Are you noticing that the, the students putting their hand around their mouth a lot? Well, that's one of their tell signs that they've had too much, right? The student's really fidgety. You know, what's a really good trick for them? You know, I'll even do this for you. I'll go to Dollarama or, you know, the local dollar store and buy one of those exercise resistance bands. If you put those on the bottom of their chair, it's going to be great. They're going to be able to stay focused because they're going to have their sensory needs met. Right? And the parents aren't trying to make it harder for you, aren't trying to say they know better than you about how to teach. They're saying, I know my child really well, and this is going to help you. These are the ways that you can connect with my child and make them feel valued. Don't bother talking about this, but talk about Harry Potter or talk about Star Wars, right? I mean, yes, it's stuff that you can probably figure out on your own, but if you take the 10 minutes on that, you know, first couple of days, do it. Yeah. You know what? Parent involvement can be a source of huge anxiety for teachers. Um, just because I know you're involved in advocacy for, for parents and yourself for your own child learning. And I'm on the other side and I, I hear the teachers before they go into a sta or a parent meeting with a parent they know is going to be an advocate and they're all nervous. Uh, but I, I love it when parents are advocates um, because you know what? I, you're going to have situations where a teacher doesn't know the right information about your student or isn't equipped to deal with the issues of your student. And if you're that parent who knows their student well and it can go in there and talk about, to that teacher and help that situation out or advocate for your student when they need it, like that's so important for their, their success. And I also think, you know, parental consent is super important when you're trying to develop a plan to help students out like uh you want the parents on your side and the continuity between home and school is important also i i just have to say i could picture your 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 anecdote there of a teacher being like well i know kids i don't need that information i could picture a teacher doing that but i also couldn't imagine the arrogance law required to make such a statement my god uh i hope there are not teachers listening to the podcast who would do something like that uh, yeah. Well, and the thing that I like to say, as I remember seeing a specialist about um, something with one of my children, and um, they said to me, and this is like a well-regarded, super amazing specialist, but the thing, there was, there's something that he's not an expert on. He, he said, you know what? I find that parents become the expert and you don't want to get between a mama bear or a papa bear and their kid and the thing to be conscious of is there's a genetic component to a lot of these things right adhd learning disabilities um and so you also have to remember that there's the potential 
for the trauma that the parent went through as a child going through this, right? And the upsetting situation that they're being presented. And in the IEP meeting, they feel like it's them against you. And it's easy for them to forget that you're working towards the same goal. And it's easy for the teachers to forget that you're working towards the same goal, right? You want what's best for the student. Otherwise you shouldn't be in the profession. Right. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I can say honestly that I have seen us versus them mentalities, not all across the board or anything, but uh, happen in situations, both with parents and with teachers. And I think that's always a very, uh, it's not the mindset that you want to be in, especially as the teacher in that situation. You never want to be in that mindset. No, and remember that even as a parent who's read their child's psych ed a hundred times, or whatever, and they've gone through 10 IEP meetings and they're a veteran at this, you're still talking about their baby and how they're different from everybody else and not having their needs met. And that emotional strain and toil is a lot, okay? And when, I mean, with social media and everything that you see about everybody else's kids, it can be really, really hard. And they'll project it on you if you're not careful. So you wanna make the process and take that upper hand and realize that yes, they can be the, you know, the captain or whatever, however different people say it of the meeting and the leader of the meeting because they have the, the whole picture of this kid. And they're interested in this kid after the year that you're in the class with you, right? Yeah. So you don't want to be the enemy. You want to be the ally, right? You want to be the one supporting them. And look, teaching is a thankless job. <laughs> you're always doing it wrong. There's always something more that you can learn. And your teaching, yeah, your teaching certificate is just getting your foot in the door and then there's so much and then we have problems with social media and pinterest saying oh look what i can do in my classroom look at all of this look at these beautiful things i create which is amazing and if you can do that awesome but it also puts that unrealistic expectation on you because you do have a family and you are entitled to personal life your personal life um, and not spending 24 seven on your students and understanding their needs. But that's why we want to create an IEP document that you can take look at and use without having to go there. So instead of saying, you know, do this that I've cut and pasted, we actually say, okay, well, this student struggles in this area and this is the base skill that we need to work on, right? And having that list of things that have been done, that have worked, that haven't worked is also gonna save you a lot of frustration. And be okay with saying, look, we have this, it's working. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. You don't need to make it more difficult for yourself. And you know, thinking like right now, when we're recording this, it's the summer right? So it's before students are going back to school and thinking, okay, well, in the upcoming year, 
I'm going to have other students that are going to do this. And I know it's not typical for teachers to do this, but a simple way that you can go above and beyond, and it's, you know, not going to take you that much time is figure out what you're going to do for the first term. I mean, yes, you're going to say, you're not going to write it in stone, but you know what? I'm going to be doing these books. I'm going to be talking about these things. And, you know, there's great, there's teachers. I know some of my own kids, so we get these great like things on Friday. This is what's coming up and it's amazing. And it's really, really helpful as parents. But if you're able to do that, especially as kids get older before the school year, so they can prepare, right? And yes, of course, it's the real world, world things change and it's not going to be held against you if you don't do a novel that you're going to do and things change. Like I know, you know, I had this whole beautifully planned unit and then partway through my, my students showed this huge interest in another area and I'm like, okay, we're going to change because I think this is going to get you more. We're going to still get the objectives met, but we're going to do this tangent. And, you know, that's the flexibility that you need to build in. But being aware of how to support the students, especially the ones with, you know, uh, those that struggle with transitions, with the anxiety, with autism, right? This is going to help them. And those students that have the processing speed issues, if they're able to front load stuff beforehand, you're going to see more success. You're going to be a happier student in your class and less disruptions. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to transition away a little bit here, although I, I'm really grateful for all of your answers and all your information today. Um, but you, you kind of talked about how much information there is out there on education on the internet right now and all the Pinterest teaching um, and Instagram teaching. And I, I think that's actually a large, large part of why I started this podcast and uh, the website and why I've written a book and I'm trying to get published. And it's just, we're kind of overloaded with information in uh, education. And if I'm being totally honest, I think most of that information is very low quality. Um, uh, for the record, she's agreeing with me. She's nodding her head. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, even in the, the teacher's college, the way teacher's college is, is taught, at least in my experience, is very much like uh, often your professors are retired teachers and the, the material is like, okay, you write us an essay about what you think is best practice based off what you feel. Um, and then the, the standard of evidence they're looking for in that essay isn't particularly high. And I, I think it's almost like an inquiry-based learning approach to training teachers. Um, but the reality, I think, is that the literature, uh, the scientific literature behind teaching shows that there are some very specific things that work better in certain situations and that we do have some sort of technical skills that I think teachers should be trying to develop. Um, and it's part of why I really like interviewing you, Dr. Carforth, is one, I know that you're very um, knowledgeable in this specific area, um, but you're also, uh, you're also very quite honest about your, your approach to that and that you, you specifically promote evidence-based uh, teaching methodology and you're very direct in how you promote it. Now, you've, you've just started a course um, and this is starting to sound like an infographic I'm not paid to do this, by the way. I'm, I am endorsing her course, but uh, that's just because I believe in it. She, uh, Dr. Gar Garforth has given me a free um, access or trial access to her course. And uh, I have to say, I really liked it because you're just giving direct instruction. This is something we talk about in this podcast, the value of direct instruction at certain times, not all the time, at certain times. 
um, and you're giving direct instruction to teachers on how to improve their practice, um, specifically on the topics we were talking about today, to be fair, although I'm sure it goes into more. Um, and I, I, I think that if a teacher took this course, they'd be better served than most other courses they would take through their, their teacher's college, just because you're not given a, a, a course reading material list and then told to write an essay about what you feel is the best practice. She's just telling you what is best practice, what does this mean in the psych ed report, how you should use this information to implement in your classroom. And as, uh, as much as we all want to believe that we have the answers to the universe and we're all special snowflakes, I think sometimes there are right and wrong answers. So uh, do you wanna talk a little bit about your course and what it has to offer? Sorry, I gave a very long-winded answer there or explanation there. <laughs> sure. So I think you're talking about the um, educator's guide, or sorry, the teacher's guide to psych eds. Yeah. And so that is a course that I've created that takes you through the whole psych ed process, explains the rationale, it explains the standardized tests, how they're used, why they're used, and how you look at the scores. And then I go into the terminology and discussing the various diagnoses that you'll get from a psych ed and going into detail as to what that means and how you can support the student. And it's, it's designed to give you the information from the comfort of your own home and watch it. And it's videos. And once you've completed the course, you get a certificate of completion that uh, your professional development organization hopefully will honor. And it's to give you the information that I think you need. I've been looking through psychoeducational assessments for many years, and I've seen read many reports. And I know the value of these reports. And I think every teacher should be able to learn how to go through them and get the information they need to really support their student because it helps everyone. Right. Um, I gave Nate access to the Educators Hub, which is a new membership program that I've created that has access to all of my courses directed at educators. So that's teachers, principals, um, and people who support students outside of the school system. And it's a resource that has the opportunity for you to take these courses and the other courses that I've created. There's one on executive functioning, there's one on IEPs, um, and I'm planning within the next little while to add courses on ADHD, specific learning disorders, and it's taking the information that you need to know and doing that direct instruction approach and giving you the materials that you need. It's also gonna be looking at reading development, how it develops and how you can support it in the classroom. And there are downloads and resources that you can use. I also have case studies where I take um, the goals and objectives that I've seen in my clients um, IEPs and um, paragraphs from various psych eds that I've read and I actually go through it and I talk you through my thought process and I provide suggestions on what I think would really help you understand and then I have videos on the various terms available to you so you can understand what the term is what it will look like with a student that struggles with it or does well with it and what you can do to support them. And my goal is to give educators the information that I feel 
would really help them take their profession or their their teaching abilities to the next level and it's it's designed as a membership program so that there is a one either a one-time fee for it or you can pay for it over 12 months once you've paid for that you're in you have an unlimited personal access and as long as you don't abuse it by giving a bunch of your friends your login information and letting them do it then i'll honor it you can watch this stuff as much as you want you have the ability to join me twice a month on um question answer group calls where you can ask me questions and i'll give you responses there's a private members only facebook group and every month you have the opportunity to send me questions you know there's an outline on how the questions can be asked and then i'll answer it so i can help support your students and I want to help you help your students and have a broader reach. And I know what it's like to be that frustrated person saying, oh, if I only knew this, if I only understood that, and I'm trying to make it accessible. I know that you only have access to what's available to you and you can't subscribe to every journal that has all of these things and your time's limited, right? So the lessons are fairly brief between five and 20 minutes for the most of them some of them go into more detail so they're a little bit longer but typically if you plan on doing like a module a week there's six to eight module courses and you can just sit back and watch it at your own pace i mean of course you can binge it there's no problem with binging it if that's how you want to do it right um but it's giving you the control to get that professional development and support that you need yeah well I, I did the i did the first seven lessons of your um your psych ed course uh and i was i had to say i was really surprised by the level of quality and value you put in there i expected it to be good i like i said i this your fourth time coming on the podcast so obviously i have some respect for you as a, a scholar um but uh i was surprised by just how high the level of quality was um so I'm kind of, I know that there are some school board officials who uh, listen to this podcast. So I'm kind of hoping one of them will hear this and uh, uh, click the link to your website. So I'm going to put a link to your website in the description. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, I think it'd be great. I actually think it's, uh, it would be extremely valuable for CERT specifically or spec ed uh, department heads. Um, just to at least have one person in your, your school uh, at every school to have that level or type of training, I think would be great. Well, and that's the thing. The, the real reason that I want to do this is to help educators. And, you know, it, it's easy when you're in a, a metropolitan center and there's a lot of great professional development accessible. And yes, I know with the online communities, there there's this global knowledge that's being shared. Um, but some of the smaller remote communities, if we're able to get it there, where I don't have to physically travel there, but they can still get my knowledge, right? And it's all about the kids, right? Totally. And giving them the access to the education that they deserve. I mean, every kid deserves access to a free and appropriate public education. But if as a teacher, you're in the dark about how to go through the psych ed and how to create an IEP that's really gonna help support this student, it's not your fault. Right. It wasn't in your training. You only have so many hours in a day. 
And if you were to go and get all of this information through experience and reading books, I'm sure you could get it. And I'm not saying that you couldn't. It just would take you a lot of time, energy, and money when you need to make sure that you also work on self-care, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, uh, I spend hours of my, my own time reading about education constantly. Um, and I, I still always learn something from a conversation with you, Dr. Garforth. And I probably spend a couple hours a week reading about education and writing about it. Um, so normally at the end of a podcast episode, I would um, self-promote, but I'm going to skip the self-promotion today and just leave the promotion of you uh, and just reinforce the fact that this is not a paid promotion. I just, I'm endorsing Dr. Garforth's uh, class because I think it's valuable. So I hope you all enjoyed the podcast episode and are happy that we're off our season's break and welcome back to a new season of Pedagogy Not Grata. Until next time, folks. <laughs>